Hi, I'm John Olson. Thank you for joining us on the Public Policy This Week podcast. If you like what you hear on this show, please consider leaving us a review or telling a friend about us. Also, please consider subscribing so you'll receive a brand new edition of the show every time we make one available. We hope you find Public Policy This Week entertaining and informative, and thanks again for listening. Welcome to Public Policy This Week, a well-rounded weekly discussion of policy issues that frame today's American experience. Good morning. It's Friday, October 6th, and you've joined us for Public Policy This Week on 95.1 FM and AM 1080 KYM and Radio in beautiful downtown Northfield, Minnesota. Public Policy This Week is dedicated to the discussion of comprehensive, integrated public policy discussions. Here, we stay away from politics to the greatest extent possible to focus on policy. And we bring on guests who are experts in their fields to learn about public policy challenges and opportunities. We'll listen to what the research and data says about possible solutions to the toughest shared challenges we have in society. This week, your hosts are myself, Rich Larson, and the gentleman sitting across from me is John Olson. Today we'll be discussing electric vehicles with two of the country's leading minds in sustainable development and transportation systems policy, both of whom happen to be at the University of Minnesota. Dr. Gabriel Chan is an associate professor at the Humphrey School for Public Policy, where he is the co-director of the Center for Science, Technology, and Environmental Policy, teaching courses in energy and climate policy and technology innovation policy. Dr. Chan is also the co-director of the Electric Cooperative Innovation Center, which seeks to create partnerships between universities and electric cooperatives. He has two Bachelor of Science degrees from MIT, one in political science and the other in earth, atmospheric, and planetary science, and he received his Ph.D. in public policy from Harvard University. And Dr. Kyle Shelton is the director of the University of Minnesota's Center for Transportation Studies. Prior to his arrival in Minnesota, Dr. Shelton was the deputy director of the Kinder Institute for Urban Research at Rice University in Houston, Texas. He holds a doctorate in American history from the University of Texas and is the author of the book Power Moves, Transportation, Politics, and Development in Houston. Uh, gentlemen, thank you both for joining us this morning on Public Policy This Week. Uh, where, where are you uh, each uh, sitting for your show? We're on Zoom this morning, but where are you sitting? I'm over at uh, campus uh, in Minneapolis at the University of Minnesota. And that's Dr. Chan. Yep. Good morning, guys. This is Kyle Shelton. I'm also at the uh, University of Minnesota campus in uh, somewhat dreary Minneapolis this morning. <laughs> Uh, gentlemen, I didn't get a chance to say hello to you before we went on the air, so I'm, I'm Rich Larson's pleasure to meet you both. I've been really looking forward to having this conversation this morning. Um, if we could, uh, I'd like to begin with some just fundamental information. Um, there's a lot to know and understand about electric vehicles. In fact, I thought I knew something about electric vehicles, and then I sat down to start uh, writing out some intelligent questions and realized, yeah, I have about 14 hours of research to do before I can even come up with that. So um, a friend of uh, who works in and around the electric vehicle industry told me about a recent conversation he'd had with a member of his family whom he considers to be a well-educated and intelligent person keeps up with current events. The, the question posed to my friend by his family member was, do electric vehicles run on regular electricity? For all their popularity and their stature is the wave of the future. Most people do not know very much about EVs. Can you give us a 10,000-foot uh, look at the basics of electric vehicles? I mean, it should go without saying that uh, they're fundamentally different from an automobile with a combustion engine. 
but how different are they? And is, is the EV revolution a real thing? If so, when can we expect it to arrive? Or are EVs simply a 21st century fad and a creation of Elon Musk's marketing genius? Those are, those are great questions. Uh, I, I don't think your friend or yourself are alone and not understanding all the ins and outs of the, the new technology and, and the new approach to EVs. I think like any uh, new product coming online and, and sort of not having super wide adoption where we're not exposed to it yet in our daily lives, um, you're going to have lots of questions. So um, I would say to the basics of EVs, right, there are kind of three categories of, of major vehicles at this point. Um, there are hybrid EVs. So like you think of the Toyota Prius as sort of mm-hmm. being the uh, best example of that, right? It is a internal combustion engine and some hybrid technology, electric technology. Um, those are not necessarily plug-ins, right? There are some that can have uh, augmentation of plug-ins, but that's a kind of second category. So you have those, which is the combination of the engines, the internal combustion and runs on gas and has an electric motor as well. Um, then you have the plug-in hybrids, so that's maybe like a Nissan Leaf, where, um, again, there is still an internal combustion engine on those, but they are getting most of their power um, from a plug-in as opposed to um, the regenerative braking and other things that happen on the Prius. Uh, and then what is really growing right now, I would say, is the battery EVs. So those are, are fully electric vehicles. They do not have an internal combustion engine at all. Um, they are entirely reliant on electric power, um, usually through plugins, obviously, at this stage. Um, and that's where I think we're getting and seeing a lot of the attention. And I, and I would say that's where most folks are sort of like, what does this mean? And if I got one of these, what does it mean for having a charger in my home? Can I have a charger in my home? Do I need to update my electric panel? The, you know, right, all of these right. questions that come from that that I've certainly been encountering myself. I honestly, I, not to interrupt you, I honestly have wondered, do I have to upgrade my house to, you know, 220 electricity just to even charge an EV? And I think that's a pretty common question, too, by the way. Yeah, and I think that goes to how fast you want to charge your EV. Okay. Uh, you, you could charge just about anything on uh, your regular uh, 110, but having a more powerful uh, 220, just like with our other big appliances, mm-hmm. is definitely helpful. Uh, and uh, it allows you to charge more quickly, right? So the newer chargers that are coming online, uh, the level two and level threes that uh, really allow you to do it in a matter of um, matter of hours at a minimum <laughs> or at a maximum and, and sometimes quicker, um, really are going to require those bigger amounts of voltage. And, and Dr. Chan, do you have anything uh, you'd like to add on, on what an electric vehicle actually is? Yeah, I mean, I think at, at its heart, um, the the new kind of EVs, the fully electric that Kyle's talking about, those are utilizing big batteries. But those batteries actually aren't that new. It's the same basic kind of chemistry as the battery in your cell phone or in your laptop. These lithium-ion batteries are the dominant share. And so the charging that Kyle's referring to is pretty similar to how you charge your phone or your laptop, just at a much larger scale because you need a lot more juice for a car than you do uh, for a laptop. But, you know, at its heart, an electric vehicle is is a car that has in it a big battery and an electric motor. And that means that oftentimes the performance can be a lot better than uh, an internal combustion uh, gasoline or, or diesel car because um, an electric vehicle, uh, electric motor just ends up being a lot more efficient. You get a lot more uh, torque and horsepower. 
So they're much faster, uh, zero to sixty uh, than a than a gasoline powered engine, uh, as right. I understand it. Uh, acceleration on uh, on the uh, the Teslas is uh, feels like a catapult shot off an aircraft carrier. <laughs> Yeah, and that, I would also say, you know, that raises some interesting safety questions, too, because sure. it's also a lot of those vehicles are heavier. The batteries are really big. And the longer we the more we're trying to address issues with storage, um, you know, both that power and the weight of those batteries are going to lead to a whole nother set of questions around how are we ensuring that we have the infrastructure in place for faster, heavier vehicles and, and also the driver behavior side of that as well. Um, so there's a lot of interesting pieces there. I was going to highlight something that Gabe mentioned, too, that's, I think, a really important difference, too, is that the maintenance costs associated with EVs are likely to be significantly less, too, because there are just fewer things on an EV to break and require regular maintenance. So there certainly, obviously, will still be costs. But in terms of, you know, the regular check-ins and maintenance that we all do with internal combustion vehicles, it's uh, significantly less on EVs. So that's another big change. Is it true that the, the, the biggest maintenance cost on an EV is tires and that they, they tend to go through tires quicker than uh, what we're used to? I have heard that. I can't confirm. I don't okay. know that 100%, but I do know the, the, the fact that the torque is so much more significant and there is, in a lot of the vehicles, more weight. I do That makes sense to me. I, I don't know for sure that that's the most common, but I would imagine it's among the most common for sure. I'm putting you guys on the spot there. I apologize. For that. <laughs> well, I, I can say this uh, from personal experience. My co-author, David Bruns, uh, for the National Security Thrillers we write, uh, he purchased uh, a Tesla, and that's what he found, uh, is that the battery or the uh, ba- the uh, tires need to get swapped out much more re- frequently than, uh, than a normal car. Interesting. Uh, Dr. Shelton, you were recently cited in an article on in the Minneapolis Star Tribune saying that electric vehicles will not quote-unquote, zero-out transportation greenhouse gases all on their own. Uh, so now that we know EVs themselves might not be the panacea uh, for climate change reversal, uh, what, what do EVs, EVs actually mean for climate change and the health of the planet? How, how are they going to help? How, how might they detract uh, from your perspective, for, for, frankly, for both of you? Yeah, thanks, John. I can start that and then hand over to Gabe. I think it's just really important to note that EVs, like any other intervention to address climate change, are one piece of a really big puzzle, right? I think transportation is a really critical space to focus on for sustainability and slowing of climate impacts because right now it is the largest sector of GHG emissions and one of the biggest contributors to the effects that we're seeing. So when we talk about EVs, uh, you know, not being that panacea, they, they still are reliant on a lot of fossil fuels at this moment to generate electricity, right? It's, it is significantly better over the life of a vehicle, right? There are fewer emissions from an EV than an internal combustion engine. And significantly, there are zero tailpipe emissions from a full electric battery electric vehicle, which obviously has a huge impact on our streets and the air we're breathing in our communities, right? So there's, I, I don't mean to say that it, uh, I don't mean to undersell the impact. Um, but what I think is important to recognize is that just shifting to EVs, right, isn't magically going to get us to this level where we are attempting to reduce our emissions and really slowing the impacts of climate change. We also have to think about how we do that shift in time and in concert with things like additional investments in public transit, making sure people can bike and walk and and take different modes to their destinations. And that's going to look different in different communities, of course, like what it means for folks in Northfield and the surrounds may be really different for what it means for Gabe and I in Minneapolis or what options we face. But it's just 
seeing those as a system rather than just like, okay, we got EVs, we're good to go here. <laughs> uh, and I'm really thinking about um, having that comprehensive look at transportation and what those other investments mean will be really important. Yeah. And I might just add too that, you know, Kyle mentioned that transportation is now the largest um, sector uh, in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. And, you know, there's a lot of transportation that actually can't be touched by EVs right now with current technology, in particular, aviation, mm-hmm. uh, long distance, heavy duty freight transport, uh, shipping. You know, these are big sectors that contribute to those transportation emissions that we don't really have, you know, marketed technologies for uh, electrifying those um, kinds of transportation. Gentlemen, we're, we're seeing a lot of governmental goals uh, around electric vehicles. Uh, President Biden has said he wants 50% of all vehicles sold in the country to be non-combustion engines by 2035. California recently announced it would ban the sale of new combustion engine vehicles by 2030. And I might actually have that date wrong. I'm not sure. It might be sooner than that. Um, even in Minnesota, the goal is for electrical vehicles to be 20% of all vehicles on the road by 2030. What is the EV production capacity right now? Um, and, and how can we expect that to, to expand? Are we going to be able to meet these governmental goals just based on what we're able to manufacture? Sure. I'd, I'd say, you know, a lot of times the, the way I think about those governmental goals is sort of an aspirational signal to the market and to some of those producers, right? So it's to say, we're setting this, we're setting this container and we're expecting you to start building that way. A lot of times those are also in response to the trends they're already seeing within the market, right? So in Mm -hmm. this case, this is not the government saying, hey, automobile manufacturers, none of you are producing EVs. We're going to require you to do that because we want to make this big change for our consumers and for our citizens. That's already happening, right? So in some ways, the the government at state and federal levels is just responding to what they're seeing the market already do, Um, you know, whether it's Tesla or a company like Ford that is pivoting hard into EVs. Almost every automobile manufacturer is investing significant resources, both in battery operations, creation of those batteries, and then making sure they have the vehicles through in which those batteries go. Um, and we're seeing that grow every single year. So, like, certainly there are lots of stories right now about the backlogs of orders for all sorts of vehicles, like the F-150 uh, Lightning and all the Tesla vehicles have long wait lists, right? Um, but those are going to continue to come down as producers build more and more of those vehicles. And I think the easiest way to think about that is the the market value of EVs is something in the order of 25 to 30 billion this last year. And it's expected to go into the hundreds of billions by the end of this decade. So that's just like the motivation for those manufacturers is right there. Uh, and the government, I think, needs to just sort of as they have done with these requirements, sort of set the expectation of like, yep, we're going to support the creation of this and, and, and require manufacturers to do this, but it's also kind of happening in step with what those groups are already doing. Yeah. And I totally agree with Kyle. I, I think the sort of long arc of history around EVs is the sort of story of uh, the EV transition seemed impossible until all of a sudden it seemed inevitable. And I think at this point, uh, we're in this world where actually, you know, the governmental goals are in some ways a little bit behind where industry is, where you have some of the biggest auto manufacturers for GM, Volvo, Mercedes, all coming out and saying they're going to stop making combustion vehicles in the next 10 to 20 years in different markets. You know, that kind of... Um, signal from the big auto manufacturer shows that they see an opportunity there and they see an opportunity to make money 
in this transition. And that's a really good thing. I think the government's role is really to come in and say, let's help you meet your corporate goals Mm -hmm. by setting out the right kinds of policies that can make that happen on time. And I think in particular with the Biden administration, with a lot of domestic benefits, let's keep those supply chains really creating value here in America. So I think that what's really you know happening now is that many of the manufacturers and the policymakers are trying to get on board to kind of steer this ship in the right direction um, so that this transition happens as quickly and as efficiently as possible. Did I say that Mercedes is shifting, or it, it, if they haven't already, they're shifting completely to electric vehicles. Is that right? And I know mm-hmm. that Ford has set up an own, its own, like electric vehicles is going to be its own business section too. It's, it's, I mean, they are, they're not kidding around with this. Right. Yeah, there's almost no no manufacturer that's not doing that. And I was also going to say we'd be remiss as uh, University of Minnesota representatives here to not say I think one of the big uh, impacts here will be ongoing research and development of new technologies when we think about the production of everything from batteries to other elements that go into these vehicles. Um, like other new technologies, as more of that investment comes, the speed with which those new innovations are going to come out and get applied and impact how we produce vehicles and how people use them is going to increase as well. Um, so I think that's just an important piece to highlight here is that we haven't had decades of research mm-hmm. into EVs and their their components, and we're going to start seeing that. And we're, going to, we're already seeing you know billions of dollars pour into that, so it's going to be a huge impact there as well. So it sounds like you're predicting a... Uh a further revolution in technological development because we're actually investing in that market now. Is that, uh, is that roughly what? Yeah. I mean, I think it, it certainly creates the environment to see that innovation continue to grow. Right. And you know, what Gabe and I've talked about even like something as simple as like the weight of the batteries, right. How, how will we continue to innovate and iterate on those? And what will that mean if they, if we can get those to weigh significantly less or, you know, how do we recycle batteries or reuse those batteries for other applications? Like all of that is going to start, uh, kind of becoming knock-on effects of this great investment and expansion of the vehicles themselves. And, and even the battery technology itself, what the batteries are made of, how they're designed, how many miles you can get out of a single charge, all those kinds of things, will actually start yep. seeing significant investment in that development. Is that prediction? Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Can I, can I ask a, a business follow-up uh, question? Uh, you, both of you were talking about uh, the initiatives that the automobile industry around the world has been uh, focusing on to, to to make this shift, the inevitable shift to electric vehicles. Uh, is that a function of uh, the ESG movement that we see going on around the world, environment, sustainability, and governance? Uh, or is that, for the U.S. auto manufacturers, is that more of a, hey, they're looking around the world, they're seeing that all the European market, uh, Japanese markets, et cetera, they're putting more and more stringent uh, requirements on their automobile manufacturing and for the U.S. auto manufacturers to be competitive on a global scale, they have to adapt. Uh, What what do you think is the driving force behind the U.S. automobile companies like Ford and GM jumping all in on on electric vehicles? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that when I think about the auto industry, it was one of the first sectors of the whole economy to figure out how to do economies of scale and manufacturing. You sort of think that's the assembly line. Or so if you can make more of them, you can do so at lower unit cost. And um, when we think about what that means for today, you have you know, some markets like the European market or even the California market where uh, you have policy that has been, uh, in those cases, out ahead of where the sector has been. But for manufacturers, it's very expensive to make just the California model and a model for the other 49 states. 
And so in some ways, they, you know, the California standards for a long time were the de facto national standards because manufacturers didn't want to make or couldn't, you know, it was more cost effective to make a single model that could comply in California. Um, and so I think that's part of it is that um, manufacturers are not looking to bifurcate the market into, you know, 10 different pieces, but they see, okay, we need to make electric vehicles in order to comply with California law or European law, then let's go all in and get as cost effective and get those economies of scale um, when we when we make that transition wholesale. Uh, so for our audience, you're listening to Public Policy This Week. My name is John Olson, and my co-host today is Rich Larson. We're talking with Dr. Kyle Shelton and Dr. Gabe Chan, both from the University of Minnesota, about the development electric of electric vehicle technology and the public policy that goes with it. You know, just one more quick point about the auto industry. Dr. Chen, you talk about the uh, uh, their ability to adapt, and, and they, they invented account, or figured out economies of scale. What's funny about that is every bit of research I did go, coming into the show pointed out that the the automobile industry has not had to change for a century, and uh, uh, there is I, there is no other example of that in uh, the industrial age. And it's, I, so this is really just a matter of <laughs> the rest of the uh, uh, karma catching up to the auto industry, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, electric vehicles are, po- as we were just talking about, they're po- powered by lithium ion or nickel metal hydride batteries. The technology in these batteries is constantly improving as we were just talking about it. We're going to continue to discuss that shortly. Um, the demand for batteries is outpacing the production. But to many, the minerals needed to produce these batteries is the the Achilles heel of the EV revolution. Uh, There are fears that the the demand for lithium and nickel and cobalt and other minerals necessary for battery production will lead to massive soil degradation problems and water shortages. I've read that it takes 2.2 million liters of water and the movement of uh, half million pounds of earth just to produce one ton of lithium. There are also concerns about human rights violations. Uh, And one article I read referred to lithium as white oil. So as the consumption of fossil fuels is seen as the most prominent culprit uh, of climate change, simply put, are we trading one ecological disaster for another as we move to uh, electric vehicles? Yeah, I mean, I think the the broader point that you're raising is that no matter how we um, are converting energy from one source to another, whether it's from fossil fuels into electricity and transportation, or even sunlight and wind into electricity. There's a lot of materials. There's a lot of you know movement of Earth as you're describing for any of those uh, ways of converting energy. Energy just is very intensive on our natural ecosystem, no matter how we do it. And so, absolutely, I think that there is a you know, the, the concerns that you are highlighting here about the impact of the minerals that are required for this big EV uh, transition, that's a serious concern. We have to look at it really closely. I would say, first and foremost, the thing that we have to figure out is what Kyle was mentioning earlier about battery recycling and trying to close the loop on those materials. Um, right now, there isn't a whole lot of business incentive to try to close the loop. There isn't a whole lot of business incentive because we just don't have a lot of these batteries coming out of cars. We're trying to put them on the road. Right. But I think as some of the first generation electric vehicles start to uh, reach the end of their useful life, particularly the batteries reach the end of their useful life, that could be a time when there really could be a business opportunity to try to recycle those batteries. 
I think in addition to everything that you mentioned, one of the really big challenges with the discussion on minerals is that actually a lot of it uh, is right now out of the control of the United States. So even if the U.S. wanted to really do something serious to tackle the environmental impact of minerals, that would require international cooperation because many of those minerals are produced in other countries and go through supply chains and, and most honestly are going through China in the supply chain. Mm-hmm. So there needs to be a lot of kind of coordination and like a global uh, movement to try to address this problem. Isn't it something like 80% of the rare earths uh, that are extracted around the world are processed in China today? Is that, is it, do I have that right, Professor Chen? Yeah, it's about that number. That's a huge. That's 75%, yeah. Between huge that. number. Are there, are they looking at alternative uh, uh, methods to, to, to manufacture batteries? Are there, are there, is there a possibility for a more, uh, climate friendly battery out there? Or even more ecologically friendly right. battery technologies? Have you, either of you yeah, read about any of those things? Term, yes. Research? I mean, I think that's an example of a place where you're going to continue to see investigation, right? So there's not, there's not a solution to that now. Um, and I think there are people experimenting with a range of uh, these different minerals and elements to figure out what we what else we can do with them. Um, but I think the challenge is going to be continuing to investigate that while this all gets ramped up. And, and as Gabe was saying, putting systems into place that um, allow us to really tackle some of these extractive resource challenges, right, that come with with any uh extractive process uh and also thinking about sort of the the labor human rights issues as well so it's sort of that doing doing both of those at once right like not not sort of going down just the path of okay we're going to do lithium ion that's all we're going to do we got to keep researching these other elements and thinking about what other possibilities there are out there um while also tackling the we're going to be focused on this resource for quite a while what are the systems we put in place and how do we do that international cooperation and conversation to try to to try to learn. I mean, frankly, it's also learning from the mistakes and the challenges we have currently and have faced with fossil fuels, right? It's not a totally different game. Mm-hmm. And so there's mm-hmm. a lot of need to kind of learn from that as well, I think. Yeah. And, and I would also add one more point, which is that right now we're talking about lithium ion batteries for vehicles. There's also um, as large of a conversation going on about lithium-ion batteries and other kinds of energy storage for grid applications, yep. putting yeah. big yep. batteries on the electric grid to try to provide just storage capabilities um, on a day-to-day, hour-to-hour, or month-to-month capability. There, there are a lot more options to do grid scale because you don't have to worry about weight um, right. because you're not moving around <laughs> grid scale yep. batteries. So there's a lot of options there that are pretty exciting, including some that actually might be really attractive um, in different parts of the world where you might have an ability to compress air in caverns or pump water up mountains or drive rocks up a mountain. You know, there's a lot of different ways that you can think about energy storage on those grid scale applications, even here, you know, potentially using iron um, as, an, as, a, as a metal. Um, but the, for the battery conversation in vehicles, I think there the, the points you're raising about um, those minerals are going to be really critical because that's, right now the dominant uh, way that we're thinking about it, and there's certainly a need for um, addressing the innovation potential there. Gentlemen, we're about halfway through the show already. Time is flying. I can't believe it. Uh, So we talked about the battery technologies, but those batteries obviously need to be charged. The federal bipartisan infrastructure bill that was passed last year allocated $7.5 billion uh, to build a national network of electric vehicle chargers. 
that money was established uh, has established the National Electric Vehicle Infrastructure Formula Program, which actually gives the state of Minnesota about $68 million over the next five years to build charging stations around the state. Uh, that money, however, is dependent on a 20% match of $17 million from non-federal funds. Uh, what, what is the status of that program in Minnesota? Can either of you speak to that? Yeah, so so MnDOT, like most other states, submitted their NEVI plan. That's the acronym um, there for that funding, um, and it's already been approved by USDOT. They it was one of the first programs stood up under the infrastructure law. Um, MnDOT did a a really quick and but thorough uh, process to sort of set out some plans. There are alternative fuel corridors um, are the priority corridors for the NEVI plan, and a lot of other investments um, in transportation for alternative energy use. Um, and MnDOT focused on those for this first round of the NEVI program. Um, they did a nice job of getting a, a public input and engagement. They did meetings all over the state and started, you know, like we talked about at the beginning, a lot of this is sort of just socializing and level setting, like here's what EVs are and here's where we're going to put them and here's where we can't put them. You know, it's not as easy as just dropping it alongside the highway here uh, in a rest area, for example. got to talk about all these other things that come with that. Um, and just starting that initial conversation with folks but I do think you raise a really good point on the match. So um, we all know the the legislature did not pass a transportation bill in the last session, which not just for NEVI, but for a range of transportation funds coming from the federal government is a really big missed opportunity. I believe the number MnDOT was using was about $100 million in potentially lost funds coming to Minnesota. Um, that doesn't... MnDOT, as an agency, has the ability to move money around to make match for critical projects when they need to. And they, you know, there's a way to sort of move from here and know you're going to backfill it with future years. So it's not it doesn't mean you can't do all of these existing programs, but eventually you come to a place where you don't have the match that you need. So I know there have been a lot of um, really important conversations about how the legislature can at the state level pass that additional funding and, and give the permission to use uh, more funds as a match. Um, so that the state is is really keeping up with um, those available federal funds. And I guess the only other thing I would highlight is that it's not just the state and the feds. What we're seeing now, and I know Gabe can talk to this too from utilities and other perspectives, is that everyone involved in this space is figuring out and thinking about how to invest in chargers. And that also includes all of us in our homes <laughs> who are thinking about EVs and sort of what that means. So the federal investment is huge and, again, is one of those big spurs um, but we're gonna we're seeing lots of chargers come online and plans come online from all over the place. And while we're on that subject of uh, of charging, uh, one of the common questions that Rich and I have heard as we were you know doing the research and getting for this show is, what happens to the gas stations? <laughs> I mean, there are a lot of there are a lot. We just here in Northfield and the communities around here, there's a lot of investments in brand new gas stations that are being opened up. Uh, quick. Quick Trip, as an example, mm -hmm. just opened a brand new one about less than a year ago, uh, just down the road from uh, from the station here. Uh, what happens to the gas stations? What happens to all the people who are mechanics uh, working on the combustion engine? Are there, are there, should we start training uh, EV uh, electric vehicle mechanics, or or is that not even going to be a thing in the future? I think generally, you know, the whole transition that we're seeing in the energy sector is going to require so much new workforce to do all of the home EV charger installations, replacing out water heaters, replacing out furnaces. Building out that kind of capacity is going to take so much labor. The jobs impact 
that you know have seen forecasted from things like the Inflation Reduction Act or other plans to transition the energy sector are massive. And so I think that the overall big picture is that the transition to clean energy and electric vehicles is going to create thousands of jobs. And part of the policy structure is also to make those family supporting union jobs. So there's a lot of jobs that are going to be created. But certainly your point is there are going to be some sectors that are going to be hit really hard. And, you know, you mentioned gas stations, but there's many others that you could include in that. You know, there's parts of the supply chain that um, even for vehicles that no longer will be um, seeing the same level of business or think about uh, some of the power plant workers or um, fossil fuel um, extraction companies. You know, so there's going to be a lot of change, but I think overall the picture is one of job growth. And so I think that there's a real responsibility to policymakers to think about for those sectors that are hit very hard, how do we uh, not leave them behind? How do we create opportunity uh, for, for those folks? So, so we focus on policy here at, 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 at the show, but uh, what's coming into my mind is an opportunity for entrepreneurs out there uh, to open up the first convenience uh, station with fast chargers in, in one of these uh, major corridors where you can plug in your car, go in, get a cup of coffee, a sandwich, whatever else you want to get. By the time you come back out, your car's charged. <laughs> I saw I saw on Twitter they had a, a gas station and they had their you know their price billboard and it had the price of premium, price of regular, price of the economy, price of diesel, and then the price of a kilowatt hour. Oh. <laughs> That actually, I mean, that feels I like that's what's, where we're going to have to go. For sure. I think that last the last point you're making, John, too, is like one of the things I was saying at the beginning, right, is that EVs are transformational from a technology point of view, and they are less transformational from a use point of view, right? Yeah, like yeah. the way I will drive an EV is very similar to how I will drive my current, mine is a hybrid, mm-hmm. but uh, my current vehicle, right? So your point about a convenience store and charging infrastructure and all of the public space and activities around that are not, that is not as much of a revolution when I think about like, what is the use case and the business case for that type of retail? That's like, I'm going to park my car. I hope I only have to park it for five <laughs> minutes to get faster, faster chargers, yeah. you know, akin to filling up my gas tank. But if I have to be there for 15 minutes, that's where you want me to walk in and have a cup of coffee or decide, hey, I'm going to sit here and have lunch or, hey, look at this nice little green space next to this convenience store. I'm going to hang out here and maybe go to this other shop, right? So there's also a sort of a land use case and the transformation that Gabe's talking about in the workforce, I think, also exists in our physical environment where people are going to be using EVs and thinking about charging in different ways. So I like your point about the entrepreneurial opportunities here as well. Interesting. Okay. Another concern brought on by electric, ve- electric vehicles is the, uh, the state of the energy grid and its ability to handle the extra stress brought on by uh, charging millions of vehicles overnight. Dr. Chan, Minnesota is part of uh, the Mid-Continent Independent System Operator Grid, which runs from Manitoba to northern Texas. And I know this because I read an interview with you in MinPost uh, after the collapse of the Texas grid in February of last year. Um, Chris Clark, the president of XL Energy, recently told the Star Tribune that adding an EV to a household could increase its electricity consumption by 50%. So, Dr. Chan, this is sort of your, your wheelhouse, but Dr. Shelton, obviously, feel free to, 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 to weigh in. Is the country's grid system ready for the expected increases in EV use and ownership? Yeah, I think um, there are some real concerns and opportunities here with this question. 
no doubt, electrifying transportation is going to create massive growth in electricity demand. And it's growth we haven't seen really in decades in the Midwest and the U.S. as a whole. Electricity demand has basically been flat for more than a decade, almost two decades. We have not grown the amount of electricity. A lot of that's because we've gotten way more efficient. Um, and so if we're going to deploy all these EVs, we're going to be doing something that we haven't done for a long time, which is growing demand. And that means new generation sources and also new ways to transmit electricity through high voltage tra uh, transmission lines and distribution lines. At the same time, we might also be electrifying a lot of other things as well, like uh, heating with heat pumps, mm -hmm. or water heaters. And I think if you look at, you know, are we ready, that question that you asked, I think we're seeing a lot of growth on the generation side, wind farms, solar fields popping up everywhere. I think where the real bottleneck is going to be is on that long distance transmission capacity to move power over long distances. That grid, that the grid has to be built really not for the average demand or the demand over the year. It has to be built to be able to handle the biggest peaks of the year. And usually in most places, those peaks occur sometime in the summer, right when everyone gets home from work. So think a hot August day, you know, it's 95, it was 95 degrees out in the day. You come home and you blast the AC, turn on the, you know, the big screen television, you get all the kids toys going. All of that is usually when the grid peaks. And so the grid has to be built to handle that time. Now add EVs to the mix. Yeah. What that means is someone's going to be coming home from work and plugging in their car, and as you said, increasing their demand by 50%. So that's a real, real problem because that's going to make that, that planning period, that peak period now potentially much larger. But it's also an opportunity because what this could mean is if we can get smart about it, we could delay that charging. If someone could come home, plug in their car, but they're in a smart charger, that's going to delay that charging by four or five hours, now that car is going to be charging. Actually, when we have the cheapest electricity, when everyone's asleep, there's nothing running, and you also have all the wind blowing, uh, particularly right, right. Uh, here in the Midwest. Right. That would be the best case scenario. It requires a little bit of intelligence to get that working, but I think that's where there's a real opportunity to create this kind of win-win. You can charge on cheaper electricity, and we don't put as much pressure on building out the grid further. And I, I would highlight that as a particular policy challenge for public officials to be thinking about, mm -hmm. because what we're seeing happen now, and I think this, I talk about this in transportation innovation all the time, is the companies lead the way and the policy and the regulation often are following. And I think this is a great example where, of course, there's a range of sort of like privacy, you know, sort of control of our own products. How do we, you know, people are going to ask questions about how a smart grid works and when I get to charge my car, can I override it, right? And this is this perfect situation for us to say to public officials, we need to be thinking about this right now. We need to be collaborating mm -hmm. with the utilities and with the vehicle operators to understand where that data is going. How are they using that data to make choices about their investments and their control of the vehicles and the technology? And then how do we get all of that as Gabe was saying, to be directed at the most sort of common good of let's make sure that we understand and regulate the process for putting peak demand on and how people understand when it's happening in their homes and what the power they're accessing or sharing back to the grid is doing. Can, can I ask a, a follow-up question on this charging uh, question or the charging topic? If we think about it, you know, the uh, we have set policy in America that has really driven the creation of the entire 
uh, electric uh, grid. And one of those things was standardizing exactly what the plugs looked like, right? <laughs> so that everybody right. had a standard plug, uh, with either with a ground wire or not. Uh, I think everything now has to be ground a ground wire. It, would the would the electric vehicle industry benefit from Congress establishing a standardized charging system for all the cars to use, so they're all the same? I mean, that's kind of what we have right now for for, for gas. Uh, it's it's all pretty much the exact same. Is that is that something that's being looked at, or is that as the industry sort of moved beyond that and everybody's sort of adapting the exact same charging systems? There's quite a bit of standardization already, but it's not universal. Um, you know, my opinion is that the country as a whole would benefit with some standardization because that means you have more interoperability. You can think of the charging network more as a platform, so you don't have proprietary Tesla chargers and everything else. Mm -hmm. But with a bigger platform, that means, you know, everyone can benefit. And we're really in this moment of, you know, a lot of questions about what's going to be the fastest, fairest, most effective way to deploy these technologies. And I think if we have more interoperability on the charging network, that's more collective benefit. It may not be as much benefit for Tesla per se, but I think everyone will benefit if there's more charging capabilities built out in more places more quickly that everyone can use. Okay. Okay, so in in, in this vein, in talking about uh, opportunities for um, technological improvement, um, as we mentioned, uh, Dr. Chan, as you mentioned, uh, uh, technology in high storage batteries is improving every day. Um, it's even been said that the battery technology will do for energy uh, what smartphones did for communications. The flip side of, of, of the grid concerns with EVs is a concept that I've read about called vehicle to grid, which allows a high storage battery to give energy back to the grid. Um, in theory, the concept means that the, the battery that powers your vehicle could one day power your home. Uh, Dr. Chan, uh, does this relate to the concerns many have about the grid? And is this, is this uh, a real possibility? Yeah, I think vehicle to grid is super exciting. Um, the, you know, the basic concept, as you outlined, is you charge up your vehicle from the grid, and then you use the energy stored on board the vehicle to feed back into devices, your home, or even back into the wholesale grid. Um, I saw the the Ford F-150 Lightning that's coming out, the big mm -hmm. uh, electric truck. Um, they, in their TV ad, they show a block party where everyone is kind of uh, having a good time by the river, and there's a DJ booth that's plugged into uh, the truck. Like, that's pretty cool, like, application of this, you know, vehicle um, energy storage being used now for powering all kinds of things. I think the vision with vehicle to grid is that if you get enough EVs out there that are charged up, that fleet of vehicles could then feed back onto the grid to lower peak demand. I think that, um, you know, right now um, there is some, you know, real indication that this could be super valuable. If we think about uh, how vehicles are charged, delaying charging is one thing, but if you could also say when that person comes home at that peak hour at, you know, 530 at night, uh, someone comes home from their commute, they still have 50% of their charge on their vehicle. If you could actually draw that down to, let's say, 10% by 7.30 or so at night, that's huge benefits to the grid. That's the most valuable time to be putting energy back onto the grid. That would be a huge benefit to everyone on the system, including the vehicle owner. But then, to Kyle's point, you also run into this coordination problem, a real, uh, you know, real challenge for policy because... Let's say, you know, I got home, I charged my vehicle, 
Uh, the day I got home, I knew I had 50%. Now I'm making dinner and I realize I'm all out of milk and I have to go run to the store. But my car that I brought home at 50% and plugged in is now at 10% and I'm not going to be able to make it to the grocery <laughs> store. So there's that real coordination challenge. I think that's where we have to get the policy right. So people are giving consent to what utilities can do to their batteries and also are getting the right kind of price signal so they can make their own decisions about whether or not to allow the utility to control the battery. But that, that run to the grocery store for milk is, is why that they'll always be used for a bicycle, right? <laughs> I was just going to say, that, that, that's the use case for having multiple modes. That's, yeah. that, that's that one to three mile trip that you can take even when your car is down below 10%. Yeah. Yeah. I, let me ask one other follow-up question if I could. I, I, one of the things that I think I've learned over time is that everything is driven by incentives. A lot of what both of you have talked about today is incentive-based uh, behavior on the part of uh, automobile companies, uh, uh, consumers, uh, etc. Should there be, in public policy, would we benefit significantly if we put in place the kind of incentives that uh, uh, created places like, you know, Target shopping centers and uh, other places to have a solar-powered charging station so everybody could just plug in when they're at the grocery store, top off their car, uh, those kinds of things. Is, would that be a benefit to society as a whole if uh, if government passed those kinds of incentives so that uh, corporate America is participating in this uh, fully? I mean, I, w- I guess I would say the more the, the the broader approach we take to it, the better. Right. Like some some smart incentives targeted to um, corporations and other users who may have right away where they can put additional chargers and you can help them, especially at this startup stage, makes a lot of sense. But again, I also think you're going to see the consumer demand where, especially those large corporations like a Target example, like they're going to know they're going to need to put chargers in, right? Because people are going to be clamoring for it and they're going to mm-hmm. have to also think about what how you manage those chargers for their customers too, right? Like on the university campus, we've run into this a couple times where the socialization of, of charging isn't quite there yet and people leave their car there <laughs> for all eight hours, right? right and right. so, you know, Gabe's scenario of a moment ago, I show up to get to my meeting. I'm like, oh, I made it, but I only have 6% on my car. I need to charge it. <laughs> and I pull up to the three chargers and those people have parked there since 8 a.m. and they aren't moving anytime soon. So I also think it's sort of that incentive, uh, you know, uh, charge, charge, uh, structure too for those that fit into that question as well. How do we get people to cycle through those chargers and especially as they're coming online? So I think incentivizing, but also thinking about how we um, right right size the sort of fees and other things associated with charging and their use is going to be a really key question. That I don't know if the the fee side can be a federal question, it's more more of a local one, but it's important. For our listeners, you're listening to Public Policy This Week with your host, Doctor, uh, with your hosts, John Olson and myself, Rich Larson. Uh, we're talking with Dr. Kyle Shelton, the director of uh, University of Minnesota Center for Transportation Studies, and Dr. Gabe Chan of the Humphrey School of Public Affairs. Uh, gentlemen, last year, the Minnesota Pollution Control Agency developed and adopted it was come to be known as the Clean Cars Act. Uh, that mirrors policies developed in California. It sets high standards for the reduction of vehicle emissions and transportation greenhouse gases with the intention of forcing electric vehicle manufacturers to make more of them available in Minnesota. 
Uh, the policy which, policy, which is scheduled to go into effect in 2024, has been hailed by some and, and heavily criticized by <laughs> others. Uh, despite the policy being upheld by state administrative law judge, uh, members of the state Senate have introduced legislation to block that policy. And the state's Auto Dealers Association has filed a lawsuit against the MPCIA claiming the policy is an overreach. Are these low emission and zero emission standards too high for Minnesota, or has MPCA done the right thing by adopting them? You study these policy issues, you look at it very broadly. Uh, we're asking a question that's a policy focused question. Uh, just it happens to be linked to politics, unfortunately. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I think. Um... Well, I mean, first, just to step back, uh, 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 one one half step back, which I think that, you know, with uh, with auto regulations generally, it's always this dance between what is um, what is enforceable, uh, what is sending an aspirational signal, um, what will the courts uphold? All of that is always a dance at the federal level and the state level. You know, when um, Obama, Trump and Biden, each of those administrations either strengthen or weaken auto standards. There's always lawsuits and there's always, you know, this kind of wrangling. But, you know, I think the there's a steady march that capital is being deployed by the auto manufacturers to make cars and charging infrastructure is coming in. And so I think a lot of the, the politics and the legal wrangling over what these rules are really are, you know, all moving sort of to create more uh, more certainty that this might happen. Right. And so it's like there's a certainty that this might happen. And if you're an investor, all you care about is this might happen. So we got to get prepared for that scenario. And I think that's what, you know, to go back earlier to our conversation, we're seeing the auto manufacturers who are going to be meeting these goals, regardless of whether or not the courts uphold this, whether or not, you know, this law gets repealed or not. And I think that's like that's part of what the impact of uh, the Walls administration putting this forward really has been is to say, to auto manufacturers, you know, if this does get implemented, you'll have to do a lot. And so the auto manufacturers can say, then we'll do it. That's a chance that we have to be prepared for. Uh, gentlemen, oh, sorry. Uh, Kyle, do you <laughs> yeah. have anything you want to add to that? You're, you're, you're looking like you might have some. No, I, I think Gabe hit on most of that. I think, again, that's sort of that example of sort of setting the container and, and asking the market and the manufacturers to meet that. And the point that it's moving in that direction is a really important one. I think, too, it's it's good to note that this is not a retro. These are not retroactive standards. Right. So mm -hmm. any place that these have been passed, it's not it's not government saying you can no longer own the vehicle you have. It's more of this. Here's where we're headed. Here are the expectations that we have for our market. Um, and we're working to, to build this in. So I think when we think about these types of clean car standards, it's more about where are we going in 10 years? And it's not saying you can't have your internal combustion engine private citizen. You're going to have that for as long as you decide to have that as a consumer good. Right. Yeah. So I think what I'm hearing from you is that really uh, the genie's out of the bottle, right? I mean, the auto manufacturers are already moving in the direction of electrifying their entire fleet of vehicles that they're selling. Uh, and they're doing that for some some factors that are global in nature, as well as the California standard. It's driving that across the entire United States. So so this opposition that we see in Minnesota might be uh, short sighted, maybe. Is that is that a good way to frame it? Yeah, I mean, I think I agree with the genies out of the bottle for sure. I mean, I think that the the nature of 
of how to navigate. Okay, now what do we do with the genie? You know, that's that's maybe above my pay grade. <laughs> um, you know, what, I guess you get three wishes, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, and the but, third one you know, better be to free the genie, right? Right. <laughs> so you really get two wishes. Um, no, I, I I think that you know managing this transition. At what pace should we go at? Uh, which part should be with incentives versus which part should be made with requirements? I think all of that is a difficult judgment, but I think certainly the genie's out of the bottle. And also, it's not just that the auto manufacturers are pushing it. I think the analysis is showing that the benefits of moving to electric vehicles are going to significantly outweigh the costs for society. And so as a policymaker, that's really their ultimate responsibility is to think about what are the total benefits for society and are those benefits going to be distributed fairly to the people uh, who are impacted by them? And I think when you, you know, your question was, is this standard too high? Well, I think the analysis MPCA has done, the analysis of the federal level all shows that the benefits that come from electric vehicles in total to society are going to be significantly higher than the costs. Okay. All right. So what we're talking about is uh, this is happening because market demand is is strong and is gaining momentum and is only going to keep getting stronger. But it also does feel like that 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 market demand is happening at a certain socioeconomic level and higher. So I, this is something that I came across in, in my research that, that I thought was kind of pointed, actually. Um, equity is becoming a, another issue with, with EVs. Uh, the initial cost of an electric vehicle can be quite high right now. Um, but the goals and the standards that are being set by, by uh, state governments um, – they're going to make operating a combustion engine vehicle very difficult within a decade or so. What is being done and what can be done to ensure that those with lower incomes are not left behind or worse are, are you know, are not penalized by the EV revolution? Yeah, that's a great question, Rich. We could spend multiple hours talking about that. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> I mean, but it's a really critical topic to to tie to these technological innovations and policy discussions, right? So, um, yeah, the high cost at the upfront right now, like it's all all the EVs are new EVs. There mm -hmm. are very few used EVs at this point, right? And we've already talked a little bit about some of the challenges with uh, battery technology and not not knowing what we do with used EVs and used batteries. So. Um, the price point to enter is going to be high for quite a while. Um, there's also really critical equity questions that we've talked a little bit about around things like tailpipe emissions, right? So if you think about, we know that our communities are drastically segregated socioeconomically, racially, a number of ways. If we're saying that EVs are going to predominantly uh, exist in households of higher income, those are also going to be predominantly white areas those tailpipe emission benefits, that's an equity concern, right? Those mm -hmm. communities are going to have way less tailpipe emission impacts, whereas groups and, and areas of cities that are still really dependent on internal combustion engines and don't have the ability to access EV technology are going to continue to have some of those negative impacts from air pollution and from emissions for quite a while. So even things that you don't necessarily think of right away as an equity question really do get impacted here. And even just uh, thinking about how we do charger development, something we've thought a lot about um, here is thinking about chargers at multifamily units mm -hmm. uh, and mm -hmm. buildings where folks don't have garages, right? Um, and I think we've probably already all seen the, the pictures of people running extension cords from their windows. <laughs> out <laughs> yeah. the right. Right. That's a policy question. It's a right-of-way question. And that goes back to if we do create incentives for lower-income households to access EVs, 
how do we ensure that they have the charging infrastructure near their homes to make that a viable option? So yeah, it's a great, great set of questions. Yeah, and I, and I would add too, when we think about the equity questions, we're not just thinking about you know, single passenger vehicles. Um, we're also thinking about the potential for yep. remote switching, electric school buses. Yep. That's a big deal right now in Minnesota. Uh, we're also thinking about opportunities for uh, car share and bike share um, and, and electrifying uh, bikes is a great way of tra- of uh, creating that multimodal transportation. Kyle mentioned earlier, yeah. e-bikes outstrips the sales of EV, uh, e-cars, uh, 800k to 600k this wow. last year. E-bikes are, are a real thing. I didn't realize They're that. Fun. Man, I've just lo- always looked at the electric bikes as cheating. oh it gives you it opens it up even more we've got an electric cargo bike in our family we can get three of the four of us on that thing (laughs) is a better car not a better bike (laughs) so we've been focusing pretty much on the electric vehicle uh revolution the inevitable change over to electric vehicles on the show today but one of the things that that both of you mentioned is that you know what we really need to have is a a, a multi transport multi grid transportation, lots of different ways for people to get around effectively. Uh, Richard, you and I might have to consider doing a show on on that in the future. I think so. And then the other technology that uh, we were talking before we got on the air was uh, autonomous vehicles, mm-hmm. and that also fundamentally changes the entire. Uh, automobile uh, industry, as a matter of fact, yeah, should do, a, do a show on that as, in the future as well. Absolutely, uh, gentlemen, we're 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 running down to the end of our time today. Uh, I'd like to give each of you maybe a minute, minute and a half, uh, maybe even two minutes, if you really want to be aggressive. Uh, <laughs> leave us with the, your last thoughts on uh, on electric vehicles uh, from a policy perspective, or uh, how it's going to impact uh, our society. What what are your thoughts? And either one of you can start. Yeah, well, maybe I'll take a step first. You know, I think that uh, our conversation today just shows, you know, the depth of the complexity here mm-hmm. with electric vehicles. We have to think about, um, we have to think about jobs. We have to think about people's own decisions around how they get around. We have to think about um, the electric grid and how we're transitioning. We have to think about the environment. I think all of these things are coming play. We talked about safety and maintenance. There's a lot of complexity here. I think also the, you know, with that complexity. Uh, layered on top of that is the amount of opportunity this is creating, the amount of new jobs that I think are going to be created through this transition to electrified transportation uh, and clean energy, I think is really, really hard to understate. You know, the pace of new construction, moving around materials, building new capital equipment, it's really something that we have not seen in our lifetimes, I don't think. I think it's really uh, hard to understate the amount of new investments that are on the horizon. Um, EVs are a big, but not the only slice of what's coming. And, you know, I think that, you know, my my kind of big thought is we need to figure out like all the societal ripple effects, what kind of policy, what kind of societal and cultural changes are potentially going to be on the horizon as we are now moving towards uh, you know, one or two decades where we're going to be building things at a pace we've never seen in our lifetime. Yeah. And all I would add to that, I think Gabe summarized that really well, is that I think a big crux of, of all of those many layers, right, and, and understanding all of the sort of policy regulatory use cases that are kind of come from here is that we all as consumers and individual users of this technology, I think just kind of need to stay curious and keep learning about it and trying to understand. So like, 
if we're purchasing an EV because we think it's going to help with climate change, let's make sure we try to understand the rest of the context there. What else can we add to that, right? It's not just you bought an EV, you're good to go, right? Like there's these questions about other modes and other actions that we can all take. And this is just this great opportunity, I think, for us to dig in and, and learn alongside this transition what's happening and where we all fit into it. Well, well, uh, that concludes the uh, this week's edition of uh, Public Policy This Week. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1 each Friday morning from 10 to 11 a.m. Your host for today's program have been John Olson and myself, Rich Larson. Uh, John and I both really want to thank uh, the two of you, Dr. Kyle Shelton and Dr. Gabriel Chen. Uh, Dr. Shelton, the, the director of the Center for Transportation at the University of Minnesota, Doc, Dr. Chan, the, uh, the Hubert H. Humphrey Institute for Public Affairs. Th- and thanks to the audience for uh, listening. It's our hope that this show, Public Policy This Week, can be a small step to having important, meaningful, in-depth conversations about public policy challenges and solutions, staying away from the high-volume rhetoric-filled conversations that are so commonplace today. Dr. Kyle Shelton, Dr. Gabriel Chan, thank you so much for joining us today. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us, y'all. So for our listeners, we hope this is a great example, this show today, of, uh, of our, our effort to strive to inform you with facts, to hear from experienced policy experts, and then you can use that information to make the best personal decisions about highly complex policy issues in your own lives. Thank you for joining us today for Public Policy This Week. We hope you'll join our show again next Friday morning at 10 a.m. Take care, everyone. You've been listening to Public Policy This Week. Tune in every Friday morning at 10 a.m. for more conversation with policy experts. Remember, this show can be found on your favorite podcast platform or stream it from kymnradio.net.